Our scripture reading today comes from 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 5 through 14. Um, you can follow along with me as I read. Uh, you can follow along on the screens. Also, we encourage you to um, um, follow along in, in, in your Bibles if you have those with you. So 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 5. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have resigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Obishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take, it off his, and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Obishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. This is the word of the Lord. I was reading recently about a Dallas police officer in 2018 who entered a neighboring apartment thinking that it was her own when she encountered an African-American man sitting on her couch she shot and killed him this man was just unarmed and watching tv in his own apartment well the officer ended up being sentenced to like 10 years in prison for her actions but interestingly the victim's brother made a public statement that he forgave the officer and publicly embraced her Well, the reactions to this brother's act of forgiveness were pretty mixed. Uh, While some people admired the brother, other African-American leaders wrote articles saying how unhealthy it was for black people to show empathy to those who continually oppress them. Forgiveness, they clarified, cannot come without consequences and decided efforts for reform and change. I think this is the very struggle of what we call cancel culture in the first place. How do we forgive each other? 
Now look, national news articles are one thing, but the problem of forgiveness and consequences can land really close to home as well. A little essay I uncovered uh, on forgiveness written by a guy named Dan Hamilton, who was talking about the difficulty he and his fiance had to go through working through forgiveness after their painful breakup. And while he acknowledged that forgiveness can be declared in a moment, the payment for that forgiveness can take years. He says forgiveness can be like buying an expensive gift for someone on credit. The gift is received in a moment and enjoyed from there on, but the giver will continue to pay unseen until the full debt is satisfied. He continues about these payments. He says, whenever I spoke to her and refrained from rehashing the past, I paid. It was done whenever I saw her with another man. It was done when I had to renounce jealousy and self-pity, when I prayed for her as she moved into other relationships. It was done when I praised her and spoke of her value, though I wanted to slice away at her reputation. Those were the payments, even though she never saw them. Okay, now think about God for a moment. We make, rightly so, a very big deal in our tradition about God forgiving us and removing the condemnation of sin. But that doesn't always mean that we are free, therefore, from the consequence of sin, does it? And the more I've thought about this, the more I've come to realize that this is a very hard place for a Christian to find themselves. You know, you can say, I believe the Bible when it says I'm forgiven, but it still feels like I'm making payments for it. In other words, if God forgives me, then why am I still suffering? So we've dropped ourselves in the midst of a story that I want to argue is really one of the lowest possible points in King David's life. He is now the exiled king, driven out of his own capital city and being publicly shamed by a family member of a former enemy. But what about God's promise, though, from Nathan about the fact that his sins were to be forgiven? Was that not promised just chapters before? In other words, David knows one thing, but he's experiencing something dark and heartbreaking. But you don't get to see the character of David, I don't think, in any more vivid relief than when you see him in this story. Because on the one hand, things I would argue are as bad as they can possibly be for him. But on the other, we know from the Psalms that David wrote during this time that David had resources that allowed him, allowed him to get through it, or allowed it, what it says in verse 14, to refresh himself. Where he found himself and where his relief came from are my two simple points this morning. The mess David finds himself in and the refuge David retreats to. Let's start with that first point, the mess he finds himself in. We are in the middle of one of the largest chunks uh, of detailed storyline in either of the two Samuel books. Chapters 13 through 20 are a sordid, very tragic tale that you almost have to read to believe. We get more specifics about this little season in David's life after his sin with Bathsheba than we do any other part of his life. The narrative just slows to a crawl and there's all this detail you get. And you've got to stop and wonder, why in the world is the author spilling this much ink over this episode? Well, the only thing that I can come up with is that the writer is trying to give us the most accurate picture of who David really is and what happened to him after this disastrous affair with Bathsheba. I've argued in other places that it's a uniqueness of Christianity 
to where almost all of the major characters in the Bible get dirt spilt on them. Nobody comes unscathed. Like, these are not Teflon-coated, you know, impenetrable heroes. David is at the lowest point of his life. And for that reason, though, he's an encouragement to other people who might feel that way this morning. We learn a lot from it. Let's, the question is, though, first, how did David get here? Rather than doing a series of five or six sermons through Samuel 13 through 20, let me just run through exactly how this story happens. It begins with a horrific rape inside David's own household. One of David's sons, named Amnon, forces himself upon his half-sister, Tamar, enraging one of David's other sons, named Absalom which ultimately results in Absalom killing his own brother Amnon for the deed. Now you've got to understand, Absalom was a very beautifully handsome man. And his father, King David, loved him very, very much and was sick every time something bad would happen to him. So when Absalom flees the royal city for having murdered Amnon, David finds a way to arrange for him to return to Jerusalem. But here's the problem. Absalom is a pretty awful guy. <laughs> Though he's back in Jerusalem, he begins to plan this conspiracy to take over the kingdom from his father. So he starts this big PR campaign for himself, convincing a lot of people in the kingdom to wish that he was king and not David. This goes on for years, as a matter of fact, until the time when Absalom is convinced that the time is right to spring the trap. So he takes up residence in a nearby city and he gives the signal to the people to man that he be king and not David. Now look, keep in mind, by the way, in that culture, you can't just say, hey, I wish I was king and hold a popular vote or something. No, Absalom knows that he has to see his father dead in order to make this plan go through. So predictably, the royal court is thrown into complete chaos and David's advisors try to figure out which way the wind is blowing and who's actually going to be their king. I mean, who am I going to pledge my loyalty to? But finally, when David realizes that the people are insistent that Absalom should be king instead, he resigns himself to vacate Jerusalem along with those who remain loyal to him. What a grim march that must have been. And all along the way, they encounter these various people who are doing nothing more than making it worse, which is exactly where we are in our story this morning. But before we look at it more carefully, think about the contrast, the conflicts that David must feel at this moment. You know, on the one hand, you have this mon monumental shame and embarrassment of being run out of his own capital city, the city, by the way, which David founded himself. And now he's banished from it. And not only that, if that wasn't enough, it's his favorite son who's betrayed him. His family's in utter disarray. One of his sons lays murdered. One of his daughters has been permanently defiled. This had to be utter misery for what David was facing. Now look, fortunately for us, we don't actually have to guess completely about how David feels about all this because he wrote a couple of psalms about it that we'll get to in the second point. But suffice to say, David is as low as he has been since he was running from his former enemy, King Saul. And so, speaking of Saul, in our text this morning from chapter 16, he encounters one of Saul's relatives about a mile and a half outside of Jerusalem by the name of Shemai. Shemai is not happy. Shemai is having what we might refer to as a Karen freakout moment because he's decided that what's happening to David is exactly what he deserves. Look what he says. 
He says, the Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. You got to know that Shemaiah, no matter how angry he is, he knows that he's risking his life to say what he's saying to King David. But this is what's interesting about his cursing. Because on the one hand, what he's saying is not actually true. If you go back and look at how King Saul actually and the rest of his house died, David did everything that he could to prevent any unnecessarily violence coming on to Saul. David wasn't the one to kill Saul. Saul took his own life in the battlefield when he realized that he was losing it so badly and when he also realized that his son Jonathan was dead. But even in that moment, David doesn't lash back at Shammai. I wonder why. Well, I think it's because even though it's not technically true what Shemaiah is saying, it's got a ring of truth about it. Look at verse 7. He says, get out. Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. It says it again at the end. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Okay, that phrase, man of blood, ought to sound a little bit familiar for those of you that are familiar with this story. Because if you go back to 1 Samuel 7 that we studied a few weeks ago, when God spelled out his covenant with David, David had said to God, I want to build you a big temple. Temple, And God said, no, you're not going to be the one to do it. Only Solomon will do that. But you're left with the question, why? Why couldn't David do something that seemed so good? Well, if you fast forward to when Solomon is dedicating the temple so many years later, he included details about what his father had told him that 1 Samuel leaves out. If you go to 1 Chronicles 22.8, David had apparently explained to Solomon this. David said, the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Ah, <laughs> God had told David that the reason why he wasn't going to be the one is because, in fact, you are a man of blood. And it's the fact that you've been a man of blood that you're not going to be allowed to, do this, to build this temple. And all of a sudden, here comes Shammai repeating something that's not exactly true, but it's got a little bit in there that feels true. You ever been there? So oftentimes, the people who attack us do so with just a little bit of truth even though it's not technically true. My point this morning is simply to say this. David is in the middle of what some have referred to as a spiritual depression. And his response to Shammai shows it. Yes, his circumstances are awful. How humiliating things must have been for him to be marched out of his own capital because of something he did. He knows it's his fault. And as if that's not enough, here comes the friend of an old enemy to curse him. But what David has done, though, David begins to hear what Shammai says as if it's the voice of the Lord. So David immediately starts to associate Shammai's rantings as the voice of God. Look at verse 11. Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. That is spiritual depression. This bad that is happening to me, it's coming from God. You see this contrast, right? David is living with these amazing things that have been pronounced over him. Forgiveness from Bathsheba and Uriah incident. You know, your children are going to sit on your throne for forever. He's got all this information, but he's looking around at his circumstances, and they're disastrous. Do you feel what that must have been like for him? 
My guess is if you can't, it's likely that you've never been spiritually depressed yourself. There's a, there's a, a pastor long since passed away, a Welsh preacher in the British Isles by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. That's a name you need to, need to remember. He's one of the good ones. Uh, Lloyd-Jones was a very super popular, extremely successful minister ministering in the town that he was in until the summer of 1949. Because that was the summer he would say that he got completely burned out, completely exhausted, completely discouraged, so much so that he couldn't even preach that particular summer. His biographer talks about exactly what he would do all day. He would wake up in the mornings and he would immediately crack open his Bible in the hopes of finding hope. Nothing. Nothing but more longing, more fear. Then he'd try to sort of leaf through the great Christian classics of the Puritans. Still nothing. And he describes what every day was like, that he would sit on the edge of his bed for hours, feeling nothing but a huge nothingness inside of him and a total lack of will to do anything about his present situation, alone and isolated without any access to the resources that he had. Now, he got better. <laughs> but you know what? I tell that story because I, th we would describe this man as one of the most influential reformed theologians of our time. That's fair. Lloyd-Jones was a big one. But even he met his match in his depression. And even he could get to a point where it all seemed hopeless and God seemed so distant and so absolutely aloof. Hey, by the way, he wrote actually, they, they, they transcribed a series of sermons he did that you can buy in a book entitled Spiritual Depression. It's wonderful for any of you going through something like that. But here's my point. Spiritual depression is not, oh, I'm in a sad point in my life or I'm just heartbroken. Spiritual depression is, I am heartbroken and Jesus doesn't care. This is God's hand who's oppressing me. This is all his idea. Perhaps I really have used up his grace. I mean, I know what he said about my status before him in the past, but there is no way that my present circumstances can support that conclusion. In other words, when God has flipped sides in your imagination, you're spiritually depressed. That's the mess in which David has found himself. However, second point, there is a refuge that David retreats to. Because again, we're so blessed to have evidences of what was going on in David internally through the whole experience. Again, verse 14 says David refreshed himself when he arrived at the Jordan River. Well, how did he do that? Well, there's two Psalms, Psalm 3 and Psalm 63, that I think give us insight into at least two ways in which uh, um, David dealt with this particular issue. He faced his fear, and secondly, he drew near. I did not know those rhymed until I read it in the first service this morning. So whatever, if that helps you, knock yourself out. Let's look at that, though, first of all. Psalm 3, the heading of that psalm establishes the context. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Bingo. Here's what David was thinking in Psalm 3. Verse 2 says this. He says, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Ooh, that's a low blow, isn't it? I mean, remember, David is the king. So David hears Shammai's cursing as if it's an attack on his salvation from God. 
In other words, what David's begun to do is, is he's realizing that what Shemaiah is saying and that hint of truthfulness in him is helping him imagine what the nation is probably saying about him. Who they're probably thinking, man, we thought Saul was bad. I mean, David sinned too. He had an affair. He, he had Uriah killed. I mean, how can a man like that be our king? He must have thought. In other words, this, the, there's more to David than a simple fear of physical harm. You recognize this. It's more than just his physical body he's worried about. This is evidence of a spiritual attack on David. It is his identity that's at stake. I was listening to a pastor years ago, a quote from a theorist named Rollo May, who's trying to distinguish the difference between fear and anxiety. Let's say, for instance, that you're crossing a street with some cars coming by. Maybe it's a busy street, like right out here at Sisk. There's a healthy fear that causes you to be careful as you cross because you see how close the cars are coming to you. But after you dash across, have you ever gotten safe on the other side and then kind of gotten the willies on the other side of it like, ooh, that was kind of close. Remember that? The first one actually is what, we, what uh, Bay calls fear and is actually a good thing because that kind of fear oftentimes is used to help keep you alive. But the second fear, the willies that sort of get on the inside, that's anxiety. And anxiety comes along when you begin to really get a healthy dose of your frailty in this world. Anxiety comes when, you are made, when it's made known to you in a vivid way just how vulnerable you really are, just how fragile you are. It's more existential, it's more subtle, but anxiety will wreck your life far more than any kind of fear will. Anxiety will do it. Anxiety that, that accompanies spiritual depression can be one of the most debilitating things that human beings experience. Why? Mostly because it's diffuse. It's amorphous. It's, it's hard to pin down, sort of an undefined sense of wrongness. Anxiety comes on you when you thought you were in control of your life, but you're like, I, I, I'm really not. So what does David do? He names his fear. Look at verse 3 of, of, of Psalm 3. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. That is really interesting. That word about, by the way, in Hebrew, can also be translated around. Turns out historians tell us that there were two kinds of shields that those ancient Near Eastern people would use in battle. The first one was an arm shield, sort of Captain America style, right? But the second one was much larger and actually almost literally wrapped all the way around the soldier so that basically when enemies would either drop things on you, maybe shoot arrows at you from a distance, you could still advance. So you see what David is doing. David's saying, Lord, you are a shield around me. You're the kind of shield that I need not when I'm absent from danger, but when I'm going through the danger. In other words, David is saying, Lord, you're going to shield me not from danger. You're going to shield me in the danger. What's the difference? Well, it means that God is going to meet David with his wondrous ways in which he does while he's struggling. God is going to wrap around him just like a shield. Yes, we are marching into danger, and, and, and God is saying to David, you do not have the resources to handle this, David. I understand that it looks to you like the kingdom is being torn from you. I realize now that you are sitting in the ash heap that is the last few years of your life. But, David, I am with you. I'm surrounding you. 
I have surrounded you. You can name your fear, but I'm the one who surrounds you, David. I'm the one that protects you. Which brings me to the second point. He not only named his fear, but then he began to draw near. Chapter 60, uh, Psalm 63 is the one that this one comes through. By the way, which is such a big point that I've been thinking on so much, we're going to do a whole sermon on Psalm 63 at the end of this series in about three weeks at the end of May. So stay tuned. The heading of that psalm says this, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Verse 9 says that there's someone who's seeking David's life. All right, investigate that. When was someone seeking David's life and when was he in the wilderness? There were two times, right? This time in our story, but also before when he was running away from Saul. But when he was running away from Saul, he wasn't yet the king. Yet the very last verse in Psalm 63 says that he's the king. So now we know what he's talking about. (laughs) David is talking about what's going on with Absalom. And the key is there in verse 3. Because he says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And there we are again with that word. This is David's favorite psalm word. It is everywhere in the Psalter. Steadfast love, loving kindness. This is that Hebrew word we've talked about before that means a a covenant love, a loyal love, a, a strong love. It's the kind of love that's celebrated, not because of its intoxication or its pleasantness. It's the kind of love that you celebrate because it's always there. Nothing can shake it. It's one thing to look at someone and say, I just love you because you give me butterflies in my stomach when I see you. It's another thing to look at someone and be like, you have been with me through everything. The second is what David's talking about here. And David began to draw strength from God's committed love. How did that happen? A number of years ago, I heard somebody use an illustration that came from the old version of the uh, Book of Common Prayer. If any of you grew up Episcopal, you'll know those little books of common prayer that they do a lot of your worship services through. There's a very interesting phrase in that old Book of Common Prayer when you get to wedding vows, what you say when you marry somebody. That is, you get to all your vows, and at one point you say to your uh, partner, uh, it says to say this, uh, and thereto I plight thee my troth. What? You can understand why we changed it, right? What does that mean? We'll start with the word troth. That's just a contract. That's just a covenant that you make with someone. Thereto I plight you this promise. Well, think about that word plight for a second. The word plight simply means a pledge, a pledge that we make. But haven't we also gotten used to using the word plight also to mean danger? Think about, we think we talk about the plight of the poor or the plight of the unborn or something like that. But the point is this. The old vows used to say that when I commit myself to you, I'm recognizing that I'm taking on a plight. It is dangerous to look at someone and say, I'm going to be with you no matter what. Isn't that what we say in marriage? Look, if you get poor, I get poor. If you get worse, I get worse. I am pledging myself to you no matter what. And for that reason, I'm in danger. This is why your knees shook, gentlemen, while she walked down the aisle. You didn't know it, but you knew it. That there was something about this. And this is the reason why God says, when you get married to someone, you need to make promises like that. But isn't it interesting in all of our liturgy that we qualify that marriage promise, do we not? At the end of it, we say, I plight thee my troth. By the end of saying, till death us do part. There are circumstances, death being one of them, in which God allows for the disillusion of this particular bond. But what I would submit to you that David has discovered is this. 
That's not the way with God. There is no circumstance in which I am going to let go of you, David. Because what I want you to see in all of this is that your confidence is going to be drawn from this one idea that when I looked at you in my salvation, I said, I plight thee my troth. That when I tell you that I love you, I'm willing to put myself in danger. There's no way King David could have had a vision of exactly what that was going to cost God to come through on that promise. Because for you and I, death can dissolve this marriage contract. Some of you have been married married twice because of that. But there's one circumstance in which it won't, and that's God's contract with his people. (laughs) In other words, David is saying and teaching to us, confidence in life, even during the most soul-crushing circumstances, flows not from trying to well up delight trying to get over my spiritual depression by getting a little exercise and eating right, as important as those things are. We get through spiritual depression not by welling up delight in ourselves, but by actually meditating on and thinking through his delight in me. It's only in how much he has held me. David sees, when he sees it, he has been loved to the uttermost. It's better than life itself. And so he can look at Shammai and say, it's okay if you curse me. I'm impervious to it because I've got joy over here. And he lets the guy go. I connect with Abishai. I I want Abishai to cut his head off. Don't you? You know, it'd be great to end the sermon right there. Y'all, we should so much be like David. Let's do better next time. But unfortunately, the text won't let us. Look, David did not finish very well. The last recorded act that we have David doing in 1 Kings chapter 2 is David asking, no, demanding that his son take vengeance on Shammai. Whoops. What happened to all that forgiving attitude there, David? And you ready for my answer to that? I don't know. And neither do you. Yeah, David had, David had ups and downs. There were times in his life where he was a shining example of what it was to build one's life on unfailing love, and there are other times in which he completely failed. But if what he believed was true, David built his life on something other than his performance. When he forgot about God's love for him, he made a mess of his life. When he relished it, it blessed him. That's true for all of our lives. But through the midst of it, God never let him go. I really hope you're encouraged by seeing David at his worst. I know I am. David is not perfect. He is deeply flawed. He's depressed. But you know what he knows? He knows where home base is. He knows where he needs to retreat to. And the place where he retreats to is in the presence of God. Meditating on his steadfast love. In other words, David found himself exactly where you find yourself this morning, a place for spiritually depressed people to long for his healing. What better spirit could we come to the table than that in, 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 in posture this morning? Let's pray. Then, Lord, we ask that you would bring us to this table and you would give us the grace to see clearly because we are failing. And sometimes, Father, our depression won't even allow us to stand. We do pray that you would give us grace to see you and to understand exactly what it is that you have done for us, that you love us beyond our circumstances, out beyond our circumstances into true and genuine joy. And we need some of that this morning as we take the bread and we drink from the cup. 
Would you help us with that? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.